Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In this episode, I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Mark Kewen, who is the author of Jesus in a World of Colliding Empires, which takes a look at the book of Mark and uh, the, the historical circumstances in which that occurs and the narrative that Mark is trying to um, elucidate for readers. So there's a lot going on in the book of Mark that Dr. Kewen gets into, uh, which is fascinating. It deals with um, topics of violence and empire and government and uh, misunderstanding of the Messiah and history. It's, it's just absolutely fascinating and something that uh, unpacks what uh, is usually at least one of the, the books, one of the Gospels that uh, I skip over because it just seems so short and kind of bland. Uh, I usually go for, for usually Luke is kind of my go-to. But uh, now that I've read this book, um, there, there's so much more depth to it, um, and, and I'm actually excited to read the book of Mark again after finishing his book. So in our conversation, we are going to get to a number of different topics that we have discussed throughout um, this podcast, but in particular this season. We're going to kind of hone in on some discussions on government. And what I like here in this conversation is that um, we don't agree on all of the, the finer details in terms of uh, maybe uh, ultimate nonviolence in all situations and um, you know, Christian anarchism and, and such. But uh, what I, I find beautiful about the conversation is that um, we, we both recognize the centrality of grace, and it's something that... Um, is more important to us than these other ideologies. And so recognizing that we can hold different uh, side ideologies because we have an ultimate ideology at the core, which is the kingdom of Jesus Christ and his lordship, uh, that's ultimate, and that's something that uh, ties us together more than anything else uh, separates us. And I think that's, that's another common theme that you're going to see uh, because in this conversation, we do talk a little bit about ideologies, and uh, I think Dr. Kuan uh, astutely observes that uh, what often ends up happening um, with politics and empires is that um, it, it blends, it merges with ideologies. Now, I termed it religion. You know, I asked, does, does religion and politics always go together? And he said, well... No, I, I don't like the term religion. I use ideologies. And what happens with empires and what happens with uh, politics uh, a lot of times is that uh, because it's connected to an ideology, an ideology of, of a particular kingdom of the United States, of New Zealand, is elevated, and we bow the knee to, to that king, to that lord, the lord of that ideology. And I think what, what you see from Dr. Kuan here is uh, in a lot of his discussions— um, and a lot of his uh, observations, there is grace and um, an unwillingness to condemn people who maybe um, believe differently or ha hold different ideologies because he constantly upholds uh, the lordship of Christ and the ultimate ideology of the gospel. So in this season, there have been a lot of other voices who have been uh, much more pro-Christian anarchy, um, vocal in that regard. I think Dr. Kuan's voice here is is a good one to help um, 
refocus and and provide perspective on what the ultimate uh, issue is and where our priority should lie and the grace that we should have in our disagreements. So enjoy this episode. Yeah, I I mean, you know, I contacted you because um, I read your work, Jesus in a World of of Colliding Empires. I know you've written a number of things, but that's that's specifically um, what I dealt with. And um, a, a lot of what you discussed in that book really jived with a lot of the things that we've discussed um, on this podcast. So you, you touched on nonviolence a little bit, um, but you know, also on a little bit of consequentialism and, and kind of the motivations of, of people. But a lot of what you talked about was, was empire as well, uh, which, is, which is what uh, I'm doing on this season right now, trying to wrestle through what are the implications for Christian virtues and um, Jesus as Lord and nonviolence and, and trying to live peaceably. Like, what are the implications when you're dealing with empire? Um, but before I, I start grilling you on that, uh, I would maybe give a brief introduction of, of what you think um, are some of the most important things to know about you and, and your work. Okay, um, so yeah, I'm Mark Kewen. I work at a place in New Zealand, uh, a little place called Laidlaw College, where I'm the New Testament lecturer and a range of other bits and pieces I do in the uh, college. Um, but my background is... I was a convert in my early uh, 20s and then went on a long journey of study in uh, Presbyterian and Baptist ministries uh, in New Zealand, people cross denominations. Uh, you don't find that in other parts, some other parts of the world. And then uh, did a doctoral thesis on Paul's missional uh, strategy, particularly looking at Philippians, and then sort of landed up here. And since then, I've been uh, teaching, writing, speaking uh from this as my point of work and uh, loving it awesome um well let's let's jump right into the the book um you uh you wrote something that i i think it jumped out to me so i think it was i think it was pretty important um so you said that it's the thesis of this book that jesus's goal through these chapters was not to convince all of Israel that he's the Messiah, because this would excite ideas of revolution. Instead, he sought to convince his close followers of his identity as the Christ. Once they get it, Jesus will then teach them what the Messiah looks like, a selfless servant who would act only out of love for others and who would die as a sacrifice to save the world, a crucified Messiah. So um, that sounds a whole lot like uh, the, the great commission to me, you know, growing up, the great commission was, Hey, go out and make converts, like get people to, to pray a prayer. Um, but what you describe here as Jesus's goal, um, and Mark is to basically build a community and dig in with people before he unloads on them and, uh, teach them, show them who he is. Do you think that, um, modern discipleship today is something that's, that's lacking in the church? Uh, fantastic question. Um, I, I can only speak out of my New Zealand context, where uh, New Zealand is uh, traditionally another one of the British Empire countries, European countries. But we've also um, got a, a large number of people from other cultures. Uh, I think certainly in a, I think in our European Christian communities, discipleship is very shallow. Um, 
uh, there's a lack of engagement with biblical scholarship, um, biblical studies, I suppose not scholarship, but just even understanding that a book like Mark, and I think God, uh, Matthew takes Mark's gospel and kind of adds a whole lot of other dynamics to it to create a discipleship manual. And I think people just haven't read it in that light enough and taken that seriously. Um, there's a lot more, I think many of our um, non-European communities, there's a lot of passion, there's a lot of desire. Uh, and perhaps in our Pentecostal and charismatic tradition in New Zealand, um, we were very heavily influenced by the charismatic renewal. So there's there's a lot of desire but um, in those sort of traditions, but there's kind of a lack of understanding, I think, of, of just what discipleship meant for Jesus. Uh, and we're seeing a little bit of a maturing in that now, but yeah, it's a crisis. We, we would say there's a biblical literacy crisis and a discipleship crisis in our nation. Yeah. Okay. And so it's, it is somewhat similar in New Zealand. Yeah. I know that that growing up, um, like I said, it was very conversion oriented and um, I would assume New Zealand's probably somewhat similar in a focus on the individual, you know, like we did a lot of proof texting and uh, oh, I've got this problem. Let me see if I can find a verse to kind of help me with that. Yes, I oh. agree with that. Um, the, the difference in New Zealand is that even the convert, the, the sort of uh, converting aspect, um, because we're further down the track in terms of decline, I think, from other uh, nations. So in the sense that New Zealand, I think, moved into secularism a lot earlier, uh, and Christendom has, uh, the, the sort of fragrance of Christendom in our culture has um, receded quicker. Uh, we're a small country, small population, and, and very strong sort of movement away from Christianity in the sort of late 20th century and into this century. I think um, even conversionism would be nice. Uh, we, we really have a problem of people feeling confident to even share their faith because of the pressure that that creates and the response they get. And then the discipleship that then is produced tends to be quite shallow. So we lose converts too. Um, or they, they, I suppose, to use the parable of the sower, they're kind of in that third category of fruitless Christians who, who have the guise of Christianity and, and some of the passion, but are sort of hooked into prosperity theology or, or other aspects that are floating around at the moment. Sorry, uh, that's that's really interesting to me because, um, you know, like when you, when you're describing empire and expectations for the Messiah in Mark, and you know, knowing what we know about the Roman culture, um, I, I know that they were, you know, maybe not secular in the sense of uh, atheistic, but secular certainly in the sense of pluralistic and non-Christian, uh, very antithetical to Christianity. Um, Looking at the early church disciples and and their form of discipleship and their their um, boldness, like what, why why do you think a New Zealand Christian who probably has less ramifications on their life for sharing the gospel would feel less emboldened than a a Roman Christian who might have more serious ramifications on their life? Christian, we we. Uh... I think in New Zealand, we've got a lack of um, confidence in the gospel uh, that comes from what it's not a hostile environment, but it's just a constantly toxic environment. And I think I think they, they've been beaten down a lot of Christians over the years of trying to speak to people uh, and just simply getting a very negative or 
caustic or hostile response. And so we've sort of stopped. I think the whole idea of, you talk about the empire, I think New Zealand is unaware of empire. New Zealand Christians are unaware of, say, the Western empire that we're all a part of, um, Europe, the USA, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and we could name a few more, which is an economic kind of powerhouse that's, and it's buttressed by military power that sort of goes back into the colonial era and then further back, even if we keep pushing, we end up in the Roman Empire. I think they're just unaware of that. And so because empire and we don't like the monarchy, we, in New Zealand, there's a, we reluctantly prefer it to a president. So New Zealanders always vote for the monarchy, uh, the, the queen and, and we're part of the Commonwealth, but they just don't really understand kingdoms. Kingdoms are things of the past. New Zealand has a very benign government, uh, although during COVID uh, they've upset people because of the lockdowns and things, but it's pretty benign. Uh, we're not, we don't have a strong presidency. So New Zealanders just, they don't really see the difference between the Christian call to um, be a disciple into God's kingdom under the reign of Jesus and live under that. Uh, and then what that means, the significance of that. And they just sort of, synch they syncretize the gospel implicitly. They don't realize they're doing it. So they're just very like the people around them. And it becomes hard to share the gospel into that too, because there isn't that much difference between us all. We're all sort of slightly blurry and they're quite salty too, still left over from, you know, the, the Christian worldview that's been permeated, the Judeo-Christian ethic. So New Zealand's an interesting place because you sort of got, but they just don't get in, they don't get what's going on, say, in something like Mark's Gospel. They just read it as a set of nice stories about Jesus. They don't see the amazing subversion of the Roman Empire going on, and therefore, they don't. and then they don't identify the empire there, and they, they tend to balk at the history when we start to talk about colonialism. They get they back off and say, yeah, but, you know, um, we didn't do that. That was our forebears. Um, we can't keep going over that ground. They just don't get it. Um, and I think by what I was trying to do in the book, and I mean, it was revelatory to me as I taught Mark's gospel, having studied Philippians too, and seen the amazing, it's that particular bit where Jesus is in the form of God, equal with God, and he doesn't sort of, and he doesn't um, exploit his position, use harpagmos, which is this amazing Greek word that's related to harpazo, harpazo, which has this idea of rapacious, violent force. And Jesus renounces any idea of that. And so I, I just don't think they see it. And so when I wrote Jesus in a World, I was trying to show people the two strands that are running through the book. They're kind of aware to some degree of the, what Mark wants them to understand in Mark's gospel when he writes it and what Jesus was trying to get them. He was calling them away from that sort of, sort of violent imperial world that just dominated them. And that's why I call it a world of colliding empires. But they, they don't then recognize that they're in something like that now. And they don't see then the radical call of the gospel to a discipleship that's so different to the world. And so they, they live in this kind of blurry, messy. And I, I put myself in that category at some point, too. You tend to be just and you're wanting to share the gospel. You're wanting to make it relevant. And then so doing, you don't realize you're actually emptying it. It's a long answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. Um, yeah, I. I find that people don't recognize, and and I feel like in the United States we should recognize much more so that we're empire because I mean we're empire right now very clearly in the world. Um, so so I think that's one aspect to it. But 
I guess I have a, another question in regard to, you know, in the book, you say that in the ancient world, politics and religion were tightly fused. And so we don't, we don't see the continuation of empire today, but I also think that we don't see the, the fusion of politics and religion. Maybe it's different in, in New Zealand, but in the States, you know, we were very big on this idea of separation of, of church and state. And we say, well, yeah, they're, they're two distinct things and they don't, they don't really merge together. Um, and I think that, that they do merge together. I mean, you see religion and politics all over the place in, in the States. Do you think that religion and politics go together in New Zealand, in the world? Do you think that religion and politics are inseparable? They're always going to go together. Okay, so that's a complex question for me because I don't, I don't like the word religion. I didn't really say that in this book. It's something that it's a, it's a bit of a hobby horse. I've blogged on it before. Um, I, I just think there's ideologies. There's competing ideologies at all points. Some of them have a god in them, or gods, or multiple gods, or a spiritual being, or the world is spiritual. So I, I balk at the whole idea of um, religion and politics ever being separated ideology and politics are bound the question is what ideologies i think in new zealand the christian ideology or as we understood it the version that was carried into new zealand through our beautiful colonialists um, which was not exactly uh, i think the sort of kingdom of god theology that you or i might agree with um, so they carried that into this nation um, that has definitely at some degree receded in the sense that personal morality, so things like sexuality, marriage, it, what, what the Judeo-Christian ethic carried into that is definitely break, breaking down all over the place. However, at the same time, they've kept a lot of the, the things that are, are that are loved in Christianity, like compassion, mercy, egalitarianism, the desire to care for those in need. That sort of still drives New Zealanders probably left of centre as a state. We're not as far left as, say, the Scandinavian countries, but certainly more than the, the US. So in, in a sense, we're kind of a bit of a mix. But I think there's this kind of other, um, the, the empire that we all have subscribed to is, is increasingly dominant, I think, which is driven out of the UN. Um, and, and I think, so New Zealand doesn't have a very strong right which is different to the US. We have a small very right. But we're, what we're doing is, and I, it's more like a kind of some of the best things of Christianity on the left have sort of taken a hold. But then that they're pushing, that sort of agenda has pushed, pushed a, the Christian morality to the edge, so the importance of family and those sort of things that were traditionally held. So it's kind of very mixed. But I don't think you can separate religion and politics when you take the word religion in the broadest sense of an ideology. And I think part of our problem is we don't know how to identify the ideologies that are influencing our society, and we don't know where to stand. Because I don't know about you, but when I look at, say, and I'm an observer of the US, when I look at the, the right of politics, I don't really, I want to identify with some of it, but other parts of it, I, I want to run a mile. But when I look at the left, I feel similarly. And so I think that and, and this takes me back to us realizing what are our politics? Who is our king? What, is, what does he want of us and how are we to live? And I think that we need to really, really, really think about that. We need to get into the gospels, understand the kingdom of God. We need to get into the letters and see the story that's going on behind the stories of the letters and really understand they were living in the Rome. Well, part of the Jewish world, they broke out of that into the Roman world. Of course, the Jewish world was part of that. 
and what was empire like for them? And then think about our empire and then start to say, okay, what does it look like to be God's community, the community of the kingdom of disciples living in that? And I think Jesus in, in the Gospels is trying to train them to do that really well. But there's no sense of revolution. There's no desire for even, I'd, I'd be intrigued to talk to Jesus in a, um, in a situation where it's um, de democratic. He, they, they didn't have a democracy. Um, it's said that the Greeks introduced democracy. I have some limited form of it, perhaps. Uh, but you know what he would say to us about how to how to engage in politics today. I think first and foremost, we're people of the kingdom, and we are people of the of the wider politics, whatever our politics are. But we need to think very very seriously how we engage in that, or else I think we get in we begin to cross some of the lines that Jesus was calling us away from. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's very helpful to use the term ideologies as opposed to religion, because that would cover, I mean, some of the, the, the states that we think of as more atheistic, like with Russia and China and such, um, which have very religious overtones, you know, the, the way that we talk about religions. But yeah, ideology covers that well. Um, yeah, I, you know, we, we talked a little bit about like, for me, the, the, you were an outside observer. I was, I was, uh, inside during the, the Trump election and, you know, you, you saying that you wanted to run far away from the right and far away from the left. That's, uh, that's exactly how I felt. It's like, I, I, I couldn't go either way. And, um, what was hard for me was that my Christian community that, you know, I, I thought was, you know, we were about integrity and all of these things, uh, rather than kind of dealing with that, with a sense of remorse, like, oh man, this, this kingdom, this Republican kingdom just doesn't comport with Christ's kingdom. They kind of threw that off and they just, they took the Republican kingdom wholesale, uh, and started to justify things that five years ago, they wouldn't have justified, they would have called out. And that was, um, that was something that got me on the path of, of kingdom and empire uh, and led me eventually to, to your book, because it was the first time in my life that empire was uncovered. And, um, you know, Republicanism was, uh, at, for my group, my conservative group was, was uh, our God and discipler. So that was, reading through your book, there was so much that, that resonated with me. Um, and one of the things that you, uh, you go over in it, um, you mention this idea, you say that uh, the covenant relationship with God was based on a kingship model with Yahweh as king and Israel, his people. The request for a king was then a rejection of God. So as I, as I think about that statement and my experience with uh, what was uncovered in the 2016 election in the States, um, I, I've at this point in my life, you know, through nonviolence and through recognizing what empire is, I've come to the point where it's hard for me to accept any government whatsoever as something that's not a competing empire and something that I can get on board with. So thinking about your statement there and, and what you mean by that, you know, do you think that this still applies for us today? Is, is a Christian who promotes kingship or presidency, um, and voting for those things and vying for those offices, you know, are we, is that idolatrous in some way, or can we do that without it being idolatry? Great question. I think there's a fine line there. Um, 
I think um, some Christians are definitely called into the political sphere. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And it seems to me that when Christianity is small, it's marginalized, it's out of kilter with the, the kingdom, whatever the kingdom is, it tends to be an easier environment. It's pro probably persecuted, so it's harder in the respect to the, the hostility and the, and, the, and the violence against them. But their identity-forming power is, is very strong. And I think what's happened in... in then you had the, the sort of spread of the, the, the kingdom of God through um, the first two or three centuries, and then you had the Constantine, and then on it went. And I think what we saw then is once Christianity begins to, begins to be harnessed into the political situation, it starts to get warped. It's just inevitable. It doesn't matter whether it's uh, left or right. You get warped in that direction. So I think Christianity has seems to function best when we're not in those places with too much influence. I think the problem we the, the the thing we're trying to do at the moment is I this is my sense in New Zealand is for a while we if we go back to the seventies and eighties of last century. Uh, we were trying really hard to retain Christendom. We fought tooth and nail on every moral issue, uh, which we lost successively. Um, so things like abortion, uh, same-sex relationships. So assuming the traditional Christian ethics are correct in those areas, um, although that with a dose of enormous grace towards all other sinners as we are sinners ourselves, I think that um, looking back, I'm not sure... Possibly we did the right thing by fighting for those things. Uh, we didn't fight. We we functioned with a lot of grace in the, well, what we thought was grace at the time. <laughs> Looking back, it wasn't as gracious as I think. But we, we basically just kept losing every one of them. And we've got to the point now where there are no virtually no more laws to change in those areas in the New Zealand context. And yet we've come out the other side of that and in a sense, we're stronger. There's a more greater distinctive in who we are. Uh, we're not bigger. Our numbers are, are not greater. They've declined, although with immigration in parts of New Zealand, there's growth. But I think there's a there's an increased discipleship in our churches that's come from that. So I said earlier, there's a shallowness, but there's actually increase, there's an increase there. The thing that what I've got, say, I get nervous about saying Christian Christianity. I've got some friends who have put me onto Christianity, very strong, a couple of ad, advocates for it in my church. And I read a thesis. Um, is it Christa Lupulis or something? I think he wrote a thesis yeah. on it. Yeah. I've, I've actually published one article on it in our stimulus journal in New Zealand because I think Christianity is, is a, it's, it's a, an understandable response. But I think what we've got to do again is go back to the first century and say to ourselves, okay, when Paul wrote Romans 13, what was the situation? And prior to that, so that's at the early, just before Nero starts to go crazy in the sort of mid-late 50s. So Nero's a benign, relatively, if there's such a thing as a benign dictator. Uh, he's got Seneca and Burris looking, looking after him and his, under his mum's sort of tutelage. He's still a young man. He hasn't. So in, in, in the Roman Empire is and his leadership is quite benign, relatively speaking. But if you go back a little bit earlier, you had uh, Claudius and before him Caligula and before him Tiberius, who was just crazy, and then you had Augustus. So you've had Caligula. So Romans 13 is, to me, an astonishing passage because it's saying to this group of Roman Christians, to me, is that in the main you can live in submission to the government. And I think what he's pushing against there is any sense of violent overthrow. Uh, 
I don't think he's saying you can't engage. And so I think there is a place for Christianity to engage because one of our calls is to be a prophetic voice uh, to the empire, whatever that empire is. The difference with Israel, though, is Israel was set up as a theocracy. New Zealand and places like that, we're like you, separation church, church and state. The state isn't a theocracy. Uh, so I think that uh, we, need to, we need to get a lot cleverer about the way we engage. Uh, I'm always intrigued by Epiphras in 1 uh, Romans 16, who's a city treasurer. So there are politicians in Caesar's household. Paul sends greetings from Caesar's household at the end of Philippians. And the other thing is Peter, at similar time in the Neronian persecution uh, or leading into that, he, he writes something similar in 1 Peter 2, and then you have Titus 3, all written at about the same time. And I think what Christians have to do is discern when we're, be, we're moving into the Revelation 13 type conditions. When, are, when, are we, when do we have a beast of an empire that's forcing us to our knees and commanding us to yield to it with our worship? Then I think at that point, the church comes together and takes its stand against the political forces. In the meantime, I think we live primarily seeking to build God's kingdom, which is this sort of yeast, mustard seed and pinch of yeast that's going to work its way through society. It's going to grow and sure, it's going to become big, but that's our focus. And I think we get into real trouble. There are those called, I think of the great story of Wilberforce and many others who have, say, fought against slavery, Martin Luther King in the American context, um, Bishop Desmond Tutu uh, in South Africa who recently died. There is a place for that. Absolutely. But I think in the main, the Christian job is to be the people of God in wonderful communities of faith that, that are full of disciples of Jesus who love God, they love others, uh, and they want to carry that gospel with grace and, uh, as Paul says, with um, full of grace and seasoned with salt, relational, um, relational conversations and works of service into the community. And then be that distinctive community of the kingdom, be a colony of heaven on earth that people can come into. And I think what's happened in recent times in the West, it's happened here too, because we've just had massive protests down at Wellington about COVID and the lockdowns. I think us, people are crying for freedom. You know, that freedom is not, it's got nothing to do with Christian freedom. Christian freedom is the freedom to love and to serve and to be the people God created us to be in his image. So I think we've, we've got to really think seriously about how we position ourselves in relation to the empire. What are we going to say to them? How are we going to say it? Who's going to do that? In what way are we going to engage? And I think that we need to get much, much more focused on our posture, which is Christ's posture of service, humility, selflessness, other-centeredness, love, sacrifice, even suffering, um, we're not going to win every battle, but we're not here to win every battle. There's this massive call of God and this mission of God that we're part of. And I think we've been unwise, very unwise in recent times in New Zealand too, in the way that we're engaging. Yeah, no, I agree with faithfulness, faithfulness, you know, over effectiveness for sure. Um, so yeah, that that's one of my complaints with a lot of Christian anarchists as well. Like if you if you go kind of the the Jacques Ellul routes and more of the maybe left anarchists, you get people who 
start to throw off miracles and the resurrection, which, you know, as a, as a committed Christian, that's you know, how do you, how do you have Christianity without the resurrection? Um, but then you go the other direction and it's like anarcho-capitalists and who are so focused on freedom and like uh, holding the government accountable on, on every single legislation, uh, which doesn't fit with the, you know, being peaceable and, um, and, and submission and stuff. So yeah, I, I really struggle in that community because I, I feel like they're, they're kind of going in, in either ditch. Uh, so what you said resonates with me. I think the, the thing that still keeps me more towards the Christian anarchy though, was the thing that first drew me to it was the, the logical. And, and I know that you're not a, a full pacifist, um, but I think you can probably understand that as a, as a pacifist, um, recognizing that I shouldn't be violent has serious implications for governments. You know, you, uh, in your book, you quote uh, Forrester and you said, he rightly observes there is no earthly government without the use of force. And so for me to go into the government and legislate, legislation is sword. You know, I'm saying, hey, look, this is the morality that I think you should have. Um, if I legislate, I, I impose that morality on you, not through discipleship, not through example of kingdom living, but through sword. And, and that's very difficult for me. So maybe you could respond to that. I know that a lot of what you just talked about was identifying uh, at times when we recognize the state is the beast and not bowing the knee. So I, I would classify that as idolatry. You know, sometimes Romans couldn't be soldiers because they'd have to commit idolatry. But one of the other themes that you see in the anti-Nicene church is that uh, whether it's a soldier not being able to, to kill, do capital punishment, or, you know, um, uh, politicians, you know, wearing the purple or red and, and, ruling by the sword, the sword was also a, a secondary consideration for why one shouldn't participate. Um, so maybe you could speak a little bit towards how violence functions in empire and how you see Jesus's call to love enemies and lay down our lives um, as compatible with that in some form. Absolutely. I mean, I called it Jesus in the word of colliding empires and I spill a lot of ink uh, or keystrokes at the start of the book talking about sort of demonstrating that across the whole world in my limited historical um, capacities and, as a historian, just looking as much as I could at, you know, what was going on in, the, in, the, in Britain, Europe, but then pushing right across to China, India and other nations like that. I mean, basically one, there was one pattern of being in that ancient world and it was either tribal and, or it grew into something bigger and expanded, uh, which was always for a mixture of reasons. Sometimes it was pure power and design, but and desiring wealth. But at other times it was survival. You know, you, you need woman to continue the, the, the line because there's been a plague or um, we're short of food. We need food and you end up in a war. So the ancient world just swirled, you know, and you, even Israel's story as you go through Israel's story and their expectation was a Davidic, some kind of Messiah King. I talk about Theo, the expected one, because they had diverse expectations, but they were all, even in the Old Testament, when you find those beautiful passages that we now know apply to Jesus, the servant, if you read around, say, Isaiah or Jeremiah or uh, Ezekiel, there's just blood everywhere. It's it's uh, and God is at the center of all that. So you can really understand why the people at the time of Jesus didn't recognize Jesus when he was not prepared to do that um, to step into that space. 
So I think the Christian empire that Jesus sets up, if I can use that term, empire of, of what Jesus does, is reversing that. So Jesus dies on a cross uh, at the hands of empire without raising, and as he said, um, he could have raised legions of angels to defend himself, but he didn't. And then Jesus said, love your enemies. When someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also, etc., etc." I think Jesus calls us as kingdom people away from, from that. He's called us, and I, I like to call myself a bit of an idealist pacifist in the sense that that's my ideal and I aspire to it. I don't believe New Testament Christians are under law. I don't think Jesus' oracles should be understood as law. We end up doing what? The Jewish people did with the Old Testament law, where they codify it and almost create oral laws to make sure we're not breaking law, uh, because Jesus declared over law love. That, that is the law. The law is love, uh, love for God, love for one another. So I think Jesus is summoning us. So I call myself an aspirational pacifist or an idealist pacifist. And the reason I don't fully go there, and I think that is that I see two things, there's two reasons for that. One, I know if someone broke into my house and attacked my daughters, I'm um, sorry, I, 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 my pacifism would become a real problem at that point for me. And I'm, a re I'm getting old now, but I was a big guy. <laughs> in fact, I've been in a position where that happened once many years ago and tried to grab a guy, but he ran. Thankfully, there was no force involved. Um, but I, the, the second thing is it seems to me in Romans 13 and a passage like that, God has chosen to use governments to order his world and part of that is the sword and that's in Romans 13 so I think and, and when you look at the sweep of of Israel's story you've got Cyrus uh, Medo-Persian liberating them from Babylon you've got Babylon as God's a tool to to you know punish Israel because they basically fell into the same problems as the Canaanites who they themselves God had led Joshua into the land so I think that there's another layer that's that of got what God's doing on planet Earth that's a little bit outside the church. So then you get into the question of how can we be involved in that? Should we be involved in that? Personally, I'm I'm like you. I think that I I've never I've actually on on occasion over the years someone said, oh, you should run run for politics. But one of the reasons I haven't is I don't want to go into that place or space where I'm in that position of doing the very things you're saying and. But having said that, I still think you need taxes. Jesus did, didn't have a problem with us paying taxes. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Paul says the same in Romans 13. So I think there's still, it's Christians have to realize that God is ordering his world in ways that are beyond the church. And then I think at that point, it does become a conscience issue. I think at that point, all of us, and a sense of call. So you get a Bonhoeffer who, who feels called and, and, and senses that he must try and take out Hitler. Um, then, if, you know, it doesn't work. Um, well, what would the world have been like if those many attempts on Hitler's life had succeeded? So I think at that point, I think us as Christians have to negotiate those questions. And my main concern is that people know what the questions are and really understand What's at stake there? I think the vast majority of us are going to feel that we're not going to get into that space. And we see that because most Christians aren't. I think we can vote and I think we should vote. I think we should. Although I think it's a legitimate thing to say, no, I won't vote because I literally can't see an option this time. I think that's a legitimate thing. My Christianicist friends have taught me that. And I think I, I accept their argument now. I used to say you have to vote. 
you know, you've got to have a voice. But so I think that we can vote, uh, we can participate. But I think also we're called to get into the structures of our society because the local school council, uh, I don't know what you have in America, we have parents groups in every school. Christians can do amazing good in those places, the local governments. So I think that every Christian needs to just think seriously about when they're called into that space, it's, it's okay to go into that space. But then how do they function? And I think this is where love kicks in. I'm not a consequentialist. But I think love as an ethic does lead us to become con consequentialist sometimes because we have to choose between the best options, just simply because of the way life is. It's not easy. It's not so like a parent says, I'm going to use physical force, not, not necessarily smack their child, but to lift their child away from a heater. Um, so I think we've got to get much more, much, much cleverer of identifying when it's force or when it's a, protect, a protective action to limit violence. And I, I hear the use of coercion and force being used of, you know, everything the government does, indeed it is, but there's coercion in a family, there's coercion in every situation. So we've just got to get better at talking about that, working out where the lines are what, or what's going on. And again, it's situational, it, it, every situation, and just be really thoughtful and talk to each other. You know, that's where our home groups, we can talk about these things and ponder these things. But I think there's a place for a Christian going into government. I think you can have a Christian president, but that Christian president is going to do, or prime minister is going to do some, sometimes go into spaces that will make them very uncomfortable as a Christian. But they're swept up in that other part of God's ordering of the world. Personally, I'd, I don't want to go there, but I respect those who do. Long answer, sorry. No, no, good. Long answers are good. There's there's more stuff there to, to dig out. Um. So, so some of the things that have, have come up, um, you mentioned earlier about um, Paul not advocating violent overthrow um, and uh, violence to accomplish good. Um, so a quote from your book, um, you said, where the state is concerned, Paul had no interest in a liberation theology that embraces violence as a means to an end. Believers are to live as citizens of heaven, obedient to their heavenly Lord, they were also to yield to the state, living well, knowing that God raises governments to manage the world. So, I mean, I guess there, there are kind of two things there. Um, the first thing would be that it, I guess it's, it's hard for me, you know, those passages about uh, wives submitting to husbands, you know, implying that their husbands are not very good or believers submitting to tyrannical states. Um, or, you know, thinking in the United States about uh, the, the history of um, Blacks and, and whether it's slavery or uh, policing or Jim Crow South, terrible things. Um, and, and I, and, and in uh, Paul, you know, talking about slaves submit to your masters. That's, that's a very big struggle for me to understand how that, how that works. So I guess, uh, the two-part question would be, um, first of all, how do you deal with that aspect of the New Testament and, and what it means to be a believer who doesn't try to use violence um, through liberation theology and, and, and force to change the world? But then, as, as a second point, how then do you go through with government? Because government then is a means to basically liberate through force. 
Yeah, um, I think I think Chris, what Paul's doing. So we we've got to place it in its context. So at that point, Nero ran the Roman Empire. It wasn't at all um, democratic in the sense, and unless you managed to get yourself into the the level of a senate or something, and you then you got to vote. Um, so the elite male uh, ruled the world. We still do, sadly. Um, but um, so I think Paul is 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 also wanting us not to be distracted by feeling like that we need to overthrow a government when we're establishing one. <laughs> our job is to build the kingdom of God. That's our priority. And so I think there's two things. Don't use violent force against the government, even if the government is a violent um, organization that's going to impose it on you, but uh, be yielding um, towards the government. However, at that point, there's nothing in that passage that says we can't subvert. So, for example, we could harbor, uh, and this is where a consequentialist ethic has to be employed. I, I don't have a German, I don't have a Jewish person hiding in my cupboard. You know, someone knocks on the door, do you have a Jewish person hiding in your basement? No, I don't. See, I don't have a problem with a Christian lying in that situation to save that life. So the Sabbath is for to save life. Um, and, and so in that sense, uh, the, where does the line end then? Very good question. It's very difficult. So what, what I think is when Christians are observing, say at the moment there's the, the, the Ukraine-Russia war going on, which is you know really, really difficult. And, and different voices are saying that, particularly in the States, from what I can observe from the outside, Let's get more involved. Some are saying, no, let's let's not be involved at all. Let's be less involved. I'm, I'm just wondering if that's our question. Is that our question as the church? It's definitely a question for all the Christians that are involved in politics who are voting on the floors of Congress and Senate and et cetera, et cetera. But is, is, is that the church at a, at a fundamental church, political kingdom of God level? Is that our question? Is our question, though, not to pray? for our government is that, and for the government of Ukraine and to pray for Russia. Is that not our call? Is our call then to perhaps go as peace, uh, as um, medics, to be chaplains? Um, that's our primary call. Those who have felt a call of God or the opportunities open to them and they felt right in the Lord to go and step into the political space, they're going to make those decisions. Um, and they're going to have to they're going to have to negotiate that at a different level, but they have options of abstaining. There's different ways that they can engage in that situation. Certainly not if they're the president; they have to actually make those decisions. But it seems to me that um, so I think as Christians, in the main, I would I would say that there's no need for us to become involved in revolutions, but they may indeed happen around us, and when they do, we're there, looking after everyone involved without prejudice, showing the love and grace and mercy of Jesus towards those people. Um, but beyond that, I think there are those who are involved because God has called them to be involved. And at that point, those individuals have to live in that really awkward tension that many of us are too principled to enter. <laughs> but they're principled too. They, they understand that love is complex. And I think that that's one of the other things we have to really think about is what is what is love demanding of us in any situation? And that is that is never simple. Um, and it's who are we loving as we make that act, um, whatever that act is. And sometimes love says, I've got to use my 
strength and power to limit the violence that could occur in the situation. Uh, but again, there's so I, I, I have this reluctant sort of acceptance of just war. It's very reluctant and it stops me being a full on blown pacifist because I think at times it's unloving not to act like a parent with a child who's in danger. You have to. Uh, and then we macro that out. We take that out and say, and that's one of the ways that I, do, I think about this stuff. But I still think that that doesn't change anything about what Jesus is summoning us to. That I, I see the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain as the call of God away from old patterns of being towards this new pattern of being. And we're going to do everything we can to do that. But we may be like Bonhoeffer tested at some point to go beyond it. And that will hurt and be hard. And we do so repentantly. Yeah, no, I, I get that. And I can respect people who disagree with me. It's the same, uh, you know, with the election of Trump. I really disagreed with the voting with voting for Trump. But there were a few people who did it with a heavy heart and remorseful and just said, I, I did it. But Oh, that was that was so painful. Um, same thing with just war. If you say, "Yeah, but it's so painful," but I but I have mm -hmm. to accept that. What I find, at least in the states, is that um, it it wasn't very painful either of those things. Uh, going to war or um, or or voting for a compromised individual, um, people people do it all in, and um, that's hard for me. But. I can I can respect uh, people who do it with reservation for sure, um, and and one of the things you know talking about the Ukraine uh, war at the moment, that's one of the beautiful things for me, seeing uh, some refugees and missionaries come in here to Romania from Ukraine, and when when they pray, praying also for the Russian soldiers, um, and and Putin and his heart. And stuff too. Uh, that's that's so powerful for me, uh, and something that I think demonstrates the kingdom even in a time of of conflict and violence. Um, and and I know that the people praying for those those people weren't um, pacifists. So you know they they would adhere to something of uh, violence is necessary at times. Yet they're praying for their enemies, and that that I think is is beautiful and demonstration of the kingdom. Um, yeah, I totally agree. I think that um, if it if we're not if it's not hurting and it's not hard and it's not painful, then we're not taking we're not we're not really thinking about it enough. I mean, it, I, it's just as a, an observer of the U.S. political system to see a person who, to me, just did, doesn't embody Christian character and values, having almost the full support of the evangelical church, I found really hard from a distance. Um, Character matters, and I think that that's what I see in in in, in Mark's gospel, uh, and I see it in Philippians two, and I see it in John thirteen. Is character really matters in terms of who we are and what we're meant to be doing in the world? But as friends of mine pointed out, you know, it's not there's policy as well, and so these things are complex. So I have one particular theologian friend, very good friend, who travels down from the states quite regularly to New Zealand, who I won't name because. But he says, basically, as far as he was concerned, that, that him and his sort of, co you know, set of friends voted for Trump, but they held their nose as they did it because they felt that that was the best decision of the two difficult decisions. Um, 
you could have gone for an independent or not voted. I suppose you other options. Um, but I think that we we should embrace the challenge of these things. <laughs> we're, as Christians, we, 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 we're prayerful, we're people of the word, and we really dig in. And when I wrote that book, I hope it helps people to, and I'm, I was really honoured when you said that it helped unmask um, sort of empire for you. I'm really grateful because that's kind of what, that's the process I went through as I wrote it. <laughs> and I'm still going through it because this semester I'm teaching Mark's Gospel in two courses, actually, one a postgrad and one an undergrad course. So I, I, I think it's meant to be, it's meant to be hard. But the other thing, though, is that the general Christian, the, 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 the Joe and Joanne Christian out there, many of them just don't have the intellectual faculties to understand these sort of things. So I think it's really important that as those of us who are biblical teachers or preachers or youth leaders or even at children's ministry level um, and Sunday school, et cetera, et cetera, that we, we, are, we, are, we are helping them to recognize the distinctive between God's kingdom, the kingdoms of the broken kingdoms of the world, and then helping them negotiate that space uh, in a way that's understandable to them. Otherwise, I think they just get swept by the winds and the tides of what the general Christian populace is doing around them. And I think that's what's kind of happened. Um, I think we've got a, um, we've dumbed down Christianity rather than allowed people to realize it's something about the mind as well. Uh, so that's a massive challenge. Um, across the whole church, I think, in the whole Western world. And the other thing is that the whole Western world needs to recognize that it's founded on empire. <laughs> yes, we brought the kingdom of God with us as we came in its form, as we understood it at the time. But I think we need to take, as those of us who are descended from the colonials, we should willingly take a posture of humility towards indigenous peoples. Uh, also, those of us who are men towards women. Um, and, and, and those of us who are highly educated towards the less educated, to, to, to see that world that Galatians 3.28 envisages in our kingdom, you know, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, male and female. So I think, yeah, that's our summons. And I think that the Sermon on the Mount is the precepts and ideals of God that we, we aspire to. But in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is a prayer for forgiveness, <laughs> which I find really intriguing. So Jesus knew that they were going to fall short. They're not impossible ideals to lead us to the grace of God. They are genuinely what we're called to aspire to. Uh, that's, that's, that, that's really cool. Yeah, I never, I never caught that because, uh, you know, at the beginning, he says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. So uh, I, I never caught that there's a prayer for forgiveness there in the middle. <laughs> well, it's not long after that. That's 548. So you got six, nine. So then it goes straight to prayer straight after that. Um, so he knew, and also where to forgive others. So I think again, when we when we meet the other Christians, like I have, you know, some of us are Christianicists, some of us are pacifists, but we don't want to identify with that movement. Some of us feel the answer is separation, so we want to go into community. Some of us are just war proponents. Some of us are involved in politics. I think we as we engage together, we've got to model something better than we're seeing at the moment, where the Christian church is, is, is all over the world and the Western world, I think, is at each other's throats in different ways. Um, why would anyone want to be a Christian in that? And I think that's the other thing that was going on in Paul. Paul, Paul was a man of mission. He realized that the mission of God was to declare the lordship of Jesus, the kingdom of God, into the world and invite people 
to submit willingly to his reign and then to go on the adventure of what that looks like. I think that's part of the motivation for Romans 13, I think, is that while you're engaged in the politics and you're trying to influence and you're trying to convince a bunch of people who don't have the Holy Spirit and believe in Jesus to run your country the way that you want, you're missing the point. There's another country. It's the heavenly Zion, and we're colonies of that, and we're to build something so beautiful and wonderful, which, you know, with all our brokenness as humans, that people start to look at us and go, wow, wow, you know, uh, Jesus is really with them. God is with these people. There's something going on here. And we're distracted, sadly, too distracted in not doing that. And in our communities of faith, there's no room for any of this stuff. Um, the thing that worries me about Western Christianity too is because we've we've got the violence thing within the church, we haven't realized that the, the t- other tools that are used in politics, the machinations, the manipulations, the uh, the false ethics, uh, the distorting, and the, the you know anything to get people to believe the gospel, we forget to read Paul's letters where he says we don't use that stuff. Um, that's the politics of the world again, just influencing the way we do things in our churches. It's so we need to we need we need to aspire to be a better people. I think. Yeah, I agree. And so I I want to uh, end with one more question, and it might be getting out of your your zone of expertise a little bit, but I'm sure you probably have something that you can say on it. Um. I, I was really fascinated when you talk about how Mark derives, you know, obviously when you look at it, but I never thought of it, it uh, derives from Mars, the God of war. Uh, yet the book of, of Mark is all about Jesus overturning those, those common messianic, the violent messianic ideas. Um, and, and you mentioned a number of ways in Mark where that happens with, um, you know, words or images or locations that, that Jesus used that had a military overtone to it. Uh, or where his name was kind of switched with, uh, he was given a title that Caesar would be given and, and stuff like that. So it's it's so much more intricate than, yeah, just the stories that, you know, I normally read. Um, so, you know, I think that probably there's so much that we miss in a lot of other books. As, as a, somebody who adheres to nonviolence, um, one of the books of course that comes up all the time is revelation and a lot of the um a lot of the the nonviolent interpretations of revelation see that as extremely it's an anti-empire manifesto and you know we're to conquer like jesus but that conquering you know jesus shows us how he conquers he conquers as a slain lamb and the references to blood are you know you look through it and the blood is a reference to either the martyrs or jesus himself and so it's it's just a very different sort of book Relating Revelation to Mark, um, do do you think there's a connection there? Do you think that there's uh, Revelation is anti-Empire manifesto in a similar vein to Mark? Or do you think uh, the dispensationalists are are more right about it and it's kind of more um, future prophetic end times sorts of things? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um... I'll answer it in a slightly circuitous route. Um, at the time of Jesus, not one Jew. So when Jesus arrived, John the Baptist recognized him. Simon in the Simeon in the temple, Anna. There's a smattering of people that recognized who Jesus is. And 
obviously the disciples were called to him, they were drawn to him, they traveled with him, and there were the crowds that came to him. Yet by the time he went, was on a cross, he was literally completely abandoned. Um, no, no, one, no one believed in him anymore. And so, and, and I'm taken by the fact that in Luke's gospel, the first person to, to click is the, the thief on the cross who, who looks, he, he's a revolutionary. Bar, you know, Barabbas was a revolutionary uh, involved in an insurrection. So this is a revolutionary who looks at Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The second person is a Roman, Roman soldier who goes, surely this man is the son of God. So you have a, a kind of revolutionary zealot, and then you have a, um, a Roman soldier. Joseph of Arimathea at some point becomes a believer, but it was possibly post-resurrection, we're not sure. But he certainly offered his plot, and he would have been one of the people that accused Jesus and condemned him because the whole council was gathered according to Mark. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament, there's all these wonderful expectations of, of the Messiah, the, the Theo, the, the expected one figure. When he came, they didn't get it. Um, the sign they were looking for was, I think, an authenticating sign like Moses did to demonstrate his power in front of them, that they would then join him. He would gather the forces of Israel. They would go into war. Now, all the things they did believe are taken from the Old Testament. Those guys were exegetes. They examined the scriptures to see where Jesus is, he says in John 5. We do the same. We, we, we explore our scriptures, including the New Testament scriptures, and we piece together an eschatology expecting Jesus to come in a particular way. Um, where Revelation's concerned, it's by far the most complex because it's genuine apocalyptic. Uh, it's in that genre. Therefore, I, I take a very symbolic reading of it. I do think there's a futurism in, in it. Um, so I take a symbolic reading, but with a futurism. There has to be because there's a return of Christ, there's a judgment, and there's the new heavens and earth. Well, that's clearly futuristic. But I think what it, one, it's a complete misunderstanding of Revelation then to then jump and use those symbols and images as justification for our behavior today. I think that's it's the same. It's also just as dangerous as reading in a historical context. All that stuff is just exactly what the first century Jewish people tried to do with their scriptures, and they missed Jesus. So I, I think what, so when Jesus in Mark 13, and it's parallels the Olivet Discourse, uh, and then you get into Revelation, starts talking about the return of the Son of Man or gives the revelation to John, it's full of all this material that may be just apocalyptic literature. It, it may be... So, for example, the sun is dark and the moon will give no light. That's found all over, all over the Old Testament about exile. So I think we've got, to, we've got to get very clever at reading it and recognize that I think what it's doing for us is it's telling us, yes, God is going to win, but it gives us no license for using violence as Christians against any state. You can apply it again and again to any situation of oppression, I think. God's got this. Jesus is coming back. He's going to judge the world. There's going to be the new heavens and new earth. And in the meantime, there's going to be all sorts of carnage on earth. The kingdoms are going to keep coming. They're going to keep rising. Um, some of them have the name of Christianity attached to them. And there's no license in Revelation for that. For that. Uh, I, I ponder whether, you know, all the return of Jesus stuff, this is something I don't get into too much in the book. And it's, I you know, what will it look like when Jesus returns? You know, will, will, will he just turn up and... Jerusalem one day, uh, probably Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives and say, I'm back. I don't know. But certainly there's no moment in Revelation where the believers are taking up swords and fighting the state. They're martyrs of the state who refuse to bow 
their knee to the beast and or the beasts. Um, so I think it's it's a terrible misuse of revelation to use it as the justification for violence in any sense of the word. What I think it shows us is there's a point. So we've got, my old theologian friend, Max Little, taught me this when I was a student. He said, you've got Romans 13 and you've got Revelation 13. In the main, we live Romans 13. Sometimes the government is so beastly and demanding so much of his people that we say we can't. We will not submit to that. So, and that's important when it comes to marriage and other things as well. There's a, the, we don't do that. By the way, we should talk about marriage. Um, but yeah, so it's it, it's a complete misuse of that. And well, I, I think uh, it's a tragedy. Well, go go ahead and talk about marriage if you think it uh, if you think there's a lead in and it's uh, applicable here. Yeah, I've I've written a book on I've written an article on Paul's vision of a new masculinity, um, and I'll briefly summarize what's going on, say in Ephesians five and six. In Ephesians 5 and 6, Paul, there are three panels. He's got husbands, wives, fathers, children, uh, parents, children, masters, slaves. In each of those, if you actually step back from a, and look at it from a first century point of view, the first figure in each one um, is the weak partner in the marriage relationship or the family relationship. So wives, husbands, the paterfamilias, the head of the Roman household. Uh, children, and they don't, then it doesn't go to parents. It mentions parents, but then it goes to fathers, bring them up in the Lord, paterfamilias. Then it goes mas- slaves, masters, paterfamilias. So in, in that passage, Paul starts by saying, submit to one, submitting to one another, uh, submitting to one another, and then he unpacks submission, and it's mutual. And his real target is to give a vision of a new masculinity because he lands three times on the same person. So he goes, wives, submit to your husbands. He doesn't, he doesn't question it. Everyone in the room nods. Husbands, love your wives. Totally radical in the first century context. Love was a female emotion. Uh, Roman politicians were mocked and laughed at in public if they loved their wives. That's how crazy it was. I, I was reading Tom Holland's book on the Judeo-Claudian empire, and he mentions that a few times. Then you have children, and it has fathers bringing them up, which is outrageously subversive. <laughs> It's far more subversive than wives submit to your husbands. It's got dads bringing up their kids and you're going, wait a second, I thought that was my wife's job. So he he flips that over. And so here you have fathers intimately involved with loving their children, which again is a countercultural idea in the first century. Then he's got masters, slaves, and he gives them all these instructions. And then he says, in the same way, masters treat them in the same way. And there were early writers, including Christostom, who felt that that, that that was challenging the very essence of slavery. That came to flower later on. So I think that passage is calling us to mutual servanthood. That's what it's calling us to. We're just, we know a, a wife doesn't need to be told to serve her husband in the first century. She knows that, but the husband's going to do the same to her. He's going to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the key text there, which takes us back to Ephesians 5. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, which takes us back to Philippians 2. So I think Ephesians 5 and 6 is probably one of the most abused and misused passages in the evangelical church. It's actually calling us towards a vision of masculinity and female and male marriage relationships and family that's really, really very like Galatians 3.28. so does um, are you an egalitarian? I'm 
a I call myself a complementarian egalitarian okay. in the sense that I, I delight and rejoice in the complementarity of the two genders, and I am you know, male and female. Uh, and, and I have a broad understanding of that. And my wife is this incredible woman who's a pastor and incredibly fit and an athlete, and she used to love at school winning all the cross countries, including beating the boys. So I have a, you know, that's that's the kind of wife I'm married to, and my daughters are much the same. Um, yeah, but so I believe in the complementarity of the, of the genders, but I believe I'm an egalitarian, yeah. And that passage yeah. actually reinforces that to me rather than challenges it. Um, it was a it was a it was a moment of glorious revelation when I, I stumbled across this when I was researching it once for for some notes I was writing for some students. Mm-hmm. I thought, wait a second, and I was shocked. No one had, no one's I'd never I couldn't find anyone who's written up the passage in that way. Yeah, that's um, you know that's that's something I feel like nonviolence was a linchpin for me for a lot of things. Uh, empire was one of those things, uh, politics and stuff. But yeah, um, the whole idea of mutuality uh, was, is also a big thing that kind of has, has, uh, dominoed from that. Have you by any chance read, um, William Witt's Icons of Christ? I haven't read that. I will put it on my list. Yeah, that is, I mean, I've read, I've read a number of, of books and a lot of them are, are good. Um, but his was just absolutely 100% the, uh, the best that I've, I've ever found. Um, and and I also like about him that he he digs into he, half of his book is basically the Protestant arguments and half is the Catholic, and so I mean one might not be applicable uh, to you, but it's interesting how you say, oh wow, like you know the Catholic Church has very different reasons for why they're not uh, they don't tend to be egalitarian than than the Protestants, and it's just very it's extremely good. I, I highly recommend it. Um, but and and what was the title of your book again? It was an article. Um, oh, article. An article. I, I, I'll send it through to you, and then you can. Okay. I don't know what you do. It's just uh, it's, it's in a journal called um, Colloquium, and it's um, a, I think it's called a vision of a new masculinity by Paul. So yeah, I would uh, I would love to read that, and I know um, I know uh, at least one other person who I I could uh, point to that who who yeah, I uh, think might want to contact you and and chat with you too. Yeah. The fundamental problem, again, though, is that people who are reading these texts don't understand the setting in which they were written. And God's word is, it's, it's his word. It's divine. I, I, I'm, I believe every jot and tittle of the word of God is as God wanted it to be. Um, and it's inspired and God speaks beautifully and wonderfully through his written word to guide us to the living word. But, you know, the, the neglect of the human dimensions of the story of God, because it's a human document as well, just as Christ is fully human and fully divine, so are the scriptures. Just want to encourage everyone to just learn everything you can about the Jewish culture at the time of Jesus, the Roman culture, the, the, the stories of the Greeks, so that we understand their social and setting and worldview. And then we can, we the empire is unmasked, and then our own empire is unmasked. I think that that's the the way and the problem is, I think this we've flattened out our biblical understanding and teaching that, and it just doesn't unmask what's actually going on and show us the absolute dynamite that the, the New Testament is culturally and socially. It's just unbelievable what happened in that movement. It actually apologists should be all over the stuff because it reinforces something really big happened here because these people started to live in a way that was utterly different, and that's that's our our kingdom. And so 
I'd really encourage people to do that. Uh, anything they can, watch Netflix shows, History Channel stuff. I don't know where everyone gets their stuff from around the world. Learn about the world that Jesus and the early disciples were a part of, that Jew Jewish world flowing into it in the Greco-Roman world, which collides. And then you have this wonderfully, wonderful story of the kingdom of God, you know, extending into the world. And here we are today. Um, and we're called to continue that work. All right. Well, I think that's uh, that's all I have for you. So I I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to um, to to chat. Thank you very much, Derek. It was a pleasure. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.